0: Okay, and we're back with another episode of AlphaCast. I'm Mike Winner, and I'm here, as always, with Dr. Bear Paul Lando up on the Smith River in, on the border of California and Oregon in the great state of Jefferson. And we have a very exciting guest today. Um, Dr. Edith Ubuntu-Chan is joining us today from San Francisco. Uh, she is a globally recognized holistic Chinese medicine doctor, speaker, coach, and author of the Amazon number one bestselling book, Super Wellness. Her journey began in 2003 after a series of meditation induced mystical experiences that changed her perception of human possibilities forever. Since then, she has devoted her life to unlocking the secrets to our human potential. Her work weaves together ancient wisdom with the latest in science, medicine, and spirituality. Dr. Edith's book, Super Wellness, features a foreword by Wim Hof and offers a powerful distillation of her last 15 years of clinical experience. She's also a mother of two young star children and shares openly her family's journey of conscious conception, pregnancy, home birth, and child led homeschooling, unschooling experiences. As a holistic medicine practitioner, Dr. E is best known for her extraordinary success helping athletes achieve optimal health and high performance. She draws upon her background as an NCAA Division I collegiate rower and as a co-founder and past coach of San, the San Francisco Triathlon Club. Dr. E is also a level three practitioner of the Reconnection and a certified high performance coach. A graduate of Harvard University, Dr. E has been featured on CNN, Yoga Journal, Lilo Massey's Juicy Living Tour, The Goddess Project documentary, and numerous health and wellness podcasts. Her academic background includes a doctoral degree from five branches university, endocrinology and neuromuscular medicine, a four-year graduate degree from the American College of Traditional Chinese Medicine, and a bachelor's with magna cum laude in applied math, uh, mathematics from Harvard University. In 2015, Dr. E. created the very first Pranic Festival, a conference exploring the frontiers of human possibilities. Since 2018, her popular podcast, The Dr. E. Show, has featured a stunning array of world-class guests in areas like health and wellness, science and spirituality, quantum biology, and conscious living. Through her clinical practice, her writings, workshops, and seminars, Dr. E. helps visionary pioneers become masters of their energy and life so that they can lead and serve at the highest levels. And then for more information uh, about Dr. E's clinical practice, uh, you can go to danteonwellness.com or dredithubuntu.com. So wonderful to have you. Wow, what a life already. (laughs) Really, um, I'm really looking forward to this one. How are you today, Dr. E?
1: I'm great, and I have to say... um... I'm so humbled to be in you guys' presence. I'm I'm a little bit starstruck, actually, to be in your community, because you guys, both of you guys are such serious badasses, and I've been kind of trolling around in some of your Telegram chats, and I'm like, oh my goodness, these people that are in your community. I'm totally floored by the level of bad assery that's happening in your community so I'm very humbled very honored to be here chatting with you guys today.
2: Dr. Edith, it's so great to see you again and uh, this is our third time together and and I've been looking forward to this for so long because every time we talk there's so much more I want to talk to you about and you know we never have enough time even though we spend two hours each time. So, uh, God, I've been, this is so great to have you back again. And and you are the epitome of badassery. So uh, the feelings are mutual. You know, you're one of those rare people. I mean, your background is so uh, amazing as far as just your conventional training alone. But, you know, then your ability to just merge your heart. And, you know, what I get from you from the moment I met you is just that that feeling of heartfelt that is is genuine and, and so rare in today's world. And, and through that, you're just able to receive, uh, you know, what the old alchemist understood is, you know, true science, which is a balance between the, you know, the, the brain and the heart. And you just, you're a master at merging that. And uh, I, there's so much, uh, again, we could talk about um, so much we can learn from you. So uh, I, I think maybe a good place to start, you know, just to kind of get it going, because I know we can go in all sorts of directions. Um, I'm loving your book, by the way. And uh, somehow I, I would like to make this mandatory in every medical school in the world. Every doctor should learn this in their first year of med school. Uh, I mean, it's just, it's fantastic. And there's so much wisdom and information in here. Uh, if, if the average doctor understood these principles that you so eloquently uh, put in a, in a very easy to understand method and a, and a format and a whole systemic approach. Um, you know, I think we could shut down all our hospitals. But um, you have one little partner. You were about to say something. I I didn't mean to cut you off. And then I'm going to ask you a question that's right out of your book. And
1: um, Well, I was just going to say it feels like um, I I feel so deeply honored to even see you holding the book. You know, when I wrote it, it was just like, um, just, just, I put a lot of love into it, and it just flowed from my heart, and I never imagined the adventure would take me on, like Wim Hof saying yes to writing the foreword, and then eventually meeting you, and well, meeting Matt Belair because of the book, who introduced me to you, and then meeting Mike, and just, uh, it became a portal to a magical new reality of awesomeness, meeting so many people after I wrote this book.
2: Yeah. Kind of makes you believe like there's a game plan behind the scenes or something, huh? How we all came mm-hmm. together. <laughs> so, uh, okay. So here we go. And I kind of chuckled when I read this because, um, it was a question I was thinking of asking you first, just, you know, for, uh, I, I, most of our audience is very familiar with you. You're, uh, renowned. I know, uh, you know, through your practice and all your work and all your many endeavors, but for those of you that may be introduced to you for the first time today, Um, here's what I was going to ask, and then I just read it in your book, and I thought, oh, perfect. So you say, um, at my holistic medicine practice in San Francisco, it always used to surprise me that the number one question patients ask is not, Dr. Edith, can you help me with this X situation, or what food should I eat or not eat, or how many treatment sessions will we need? Uh, instead, the number one most frequently asked question is, Doctor E, how did you go from studying math at Harvard to becoming a holistic Chinese medicine healer? Uh, I think that's a great way to start off. If you care to, you know, um, you know, maybe give us a little background, and then we'll go in uh, any area you'd like.
1: Yeah, you know, I think um everybody, I believe that everybody chose their incarnation whatever um goofy families you incarnated to it was for the perfect reasons and i bet that most of your listeners out there are you're like the black sheep in the family
0: <laughs> like that what
1: right. how did i did i really pick these people sometimes you had that thought probably and um I am so grateful for my family. I realize it took me (laughs) decades to realize um, why I chose this family. And one of the many reasons is that, um, um, while I grew up in Hong Kong, which is a multicultural type of place, which is the clashing of East and West. And my parents were very scientifically minded, very modern people. And um, my dad was an entrepreneur. My mom had left her career as a journalist to become a stay-at-home mom and so they always used to make fun of the old grandmas and grandpas with their remedies you know with the ancient Mm -hmm. Chinese remedies that they were like oh is that just superstition or quackery or snake oil they always used to make fun of that whole culture and then my dad had this horrible debilitating back pain And my sister had an ankle sprain that was always swollen. She's about three years older than me. So I remember as a four-year-old child, they went from doctor to doctor to doctor. Nothing was helping. And we have um, aunts and uncles that are doctors and nurses. We always got the best top-notch medical care. But after trying all these different kinds of doctors, nothing was helping. And somebody said, hey, um, there's this like back alleyway qigong master. We've heard that he can do some things that helps people heal. And most people have seen qigong healings in movies like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon style of movies, you know? And so there's even amongst the very like modern materialistic type of population, there's still that part of the culture. And so they're like, well, I guess couldn't hurt to give it a try, you know? But this was back in 1980, before the internet. There was no Yelp reviews. There was no PubMed research database, and there was nothing. It was just like a friend said, give this guy a try. So I remember I was four years old. I totally remember I was wearing a purple velour matching warm up suit. You remember those things?
0: Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I still wear them.
1: Matching tops and bottoms. My mom loved to dress me in those things back in the 80s. So I went along to tag along and just see what like what is what is qigong. And this guy had the biggest belly. And I remember poking at his belly and being <laughs> like, Uncle, I I he, I guess he was a monk. I remember calling him Uncle Monk, something like that. I was like, why do you have such a big belly? And he goes, This is my Don Qian. This is qi. You know, I was like, I had no idea what he was talking about in one session. This guy emits his chi, and my dad's back pain was gone one session. And then in one session, he shrank the swollen ankle right down. And my sister had no more ankle pain. Wow. So I'm four. I don't have all the society programmings instantly. I knew right there. That's what I'm going to do when I grow up.
0: That's amazing.
1: And so I started telling all the adults, I was like, that's what I'm going to do when I grow up. I'm going to be a Chinese Qigong healer. And everybody laughed and they're like, no, 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 you you don't understand. They thought it was so cute at first, but then I kept nagging them about it for months and months and months. And they're like, look, that's not possible. You cannot make a proper living doing that. You need to go to school. You need to get good grades. You're going to go to college. You're going to get a good job. And you know, have 2.5 kids, etc. So uh, I just kept nagging at all the adults and saying, I have to learn how to do that. Please help me find an apprenticeship, something. I need to learn how to do it. And it was, um, the answer was a flat no. Um, it's back in those days, the only way you could become that kind of traditional healer is to stop going to school and actually apprentice full-time with a master. And then about 40 years later, if you get lucky after they pass on, they might hand you some cases to work on and you eventually become a, a healer of your own right. So that's that was a life that my parents didn't want. And obviously parents always love us. They always want the absolute best for us. And they were clear that that was not the best path. And um, so I gave up on the Chinese healer thing. And I said, okay, well, um, when I'm, when I was a kid, like many people listening, you lay down in bed, you look into the ceiling and you start to see stars and geometries and maybe your quote unquote imaginary friends that aren't actually imaginary come visit you and you're so curious about the stars. And so I said, huh, if I can't be a Chinese healer, then I'm gonna be an astronaut. And so the adults (laughs) found that acceptable and said okay if you're gonna be an astronaut go be really good at math and science and so fast forward i ended up doing getting really good at math and science i skipped a couple of grades in math um ended up studying applied math at harvard and um you know got got straight a's it just ended up being a gift of mine to be really good at, at that kind of analytical thinking and i graduated magna cum laude from harvard without hardly ever going to class to be honest um and then I forgot about the astronaut thing because in the interim, puberty hits and um, I started doing sports. I was really into sports and I was um, got distracted by boys. <laughs> and so I forgot about the astronaut thing and I graduated from Harvard and there was the beginning of the first dot-com boom. And back in those days, it was crazy. I, I, if you have some, um, college degree with some technical background, you get hundreds of job offers from technology companies. And so I got a high pay, one high-paying job after another doing technology and I eventually moved to San Francisco. Let's see, 2000 I moved to San Francisco and I was working for this technology company and just like yeah living the life you know the work hard play hard you work like 80 to 100 hours a week and you're proud of it you're like yeah more red bull (laughs) and more coffee and and boozing on the weekends and I was a
0: nightclub
1: yeah and i was uh, about 10 15 pounds fatter than i am now i had acne and digestive problems um lots of colds and flus, like nothing life threatening. Oh, I had debilitating menstrual cramps every month. Um, so many things that when I went to see the doctor, everybody said, oh, no, no, don't worry about it. It's just a little bit of stress probably. Take some Advil, you know, just take some Advil and uh, and keep going, it's, it's nothing to worry about. And I was like, oh, I guess this is how adulthood is like. I just have to like live Live in this chronically inflamed, stressed out, overwhelmed state. So I was good at my job. I won a Employee of the Year award. Woohoo! And um, and my parents <laughs> were a very hardworking immigrant family. They were super proud. I mean, it's like you've made it. You're an immigrant family. Um. Really toughed it out got your kids to United States. My sister graduated from MIT and then got an MBA from Stanford And then I graduated from Harvard magna cum laude like they are so proud, right? And I'm so grateful that my all the love my parents poured into getting us to that point, but inside I was miserable And I was getting sicker and sicker and um, One day After winning Employee of the Year Award, I was invited to this kind of senior high-up meeting at the software company I was working at, and I was like, wow, I've really made it. They invited a junior young person to the senior meeting, and the meeting was, they needed um, some support with navigating technical requirements and business requirements, that's always been a gift of mine to bridge like left brain and right brain thinking to bridge um, lay person friendly terminology with technical terminology. That's always been something just how I'm wired. So I was invited to this meeting with these senior high ups to make some important decisions. And I was like, wow, I've made it. So I walk into this board, board room. And I was like, wow, let me take this all in. This is so huge. I'm with like rubbing shoulders with the highest of the high ups. These really successful people. Some of them had already started and sold um, other software companies. Like I'm so impressed by them. And so I walk into this boardroom. I'm just taking it all in. I remember smelling the smells of the whiteboard and the hums of the the projectors. And I was like, take it all in. Mm -hmm. The moment I sit down and all the other senior high ups come into the meeting, it was like the record player just came to a screeching halt. (laughs) It's like, wow, I don't want to be like any of these people when I grow up. (laughs) They're all kind of pasty pale not very happy not bright and shiny they don't seem that excited to be here that fulfilled that joyful that passionate like i don't see it i thought by the time you get to this level you've made it you should be happy but where's the happiness here I just looked around and then the conversation of the meeting was just all about like there was no heart no passion it was all about the bottom line and um like figuring out legalities and um just it was just so uninspiring i was floored actually by how uninspiring that that the whole vibe was and then this voice started saying hey is this what you want to be when you grow up (laughs) <laughs> and instantly it kept came flooding back in the memories of being four and poking the belly of that Chico masters dantian. Tian. And I was like, what happened? I'm living somebody else's life. So that, I basically stopped paying attention to that meeting right after that realization. And at the end of that meeting that day, I went back to my desk to research Chinese medicine. How can I become a Chinese medicine healer? And um, and I discovered that a lot had changed. Now there's master's programs, doctoral programs, board exams. There's legit training programs that even my parents might possibly approve of. And so, wow, I thought I... Maybe I could go that path after all. And so I, I decided I wanted to change my career, but I was still young. I hadn't saved up much money yet. And so I started talking to friends and family and noodling. It was like back and forth and back and forth because you're giving up on a whole life that everybody says you have made it, you have succeeded, and there's so much pressure. You know, Now I'm in my 40s, I'm a very different person, but back in my 20s, my parents' approval meant a lot to me. It was earth shattering that to me back then that they disapproved of me quitting my job. It was really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, my now husband, I met him around that time partying, <laughs> partying, blowing off steam. And I met this guy that had the guts to quit his corporate job and just be like, I don't know what I want to do. Someday I want to be a tennis coach, but right now I'm just going to. Be a bike messenger working minimum wage and just kind of see how things unfold. And he was living in a group house with a bunch of dudes, and his room was eight foot by eight foot, like it's like a closet. And I would hang out in his place and realize, wow, I don't need that fancy loft apartment with the granite countertops and the chrome appliances, like, I don't need that to be happy at all. And so basically, September 11th happened and right after that I just cold turkey quit my job and and sold all my stuff packed up one suitcase my bike Dave's bike my cat all in an 8 foot by 8 foot room And I moved in with him, and that's how I started the journey of of just scrounging pennies to make it work to go to Chinese medicine school. And as soon as I signed up for Chinese medicine school, my mentor, my teacher, Dr. Fu, the Qigong healer, showed up in my life and took me in as an apprentice. So I went to Chinese medicine school during the day, and then in the afternoons, weekends, whenever I wasn't in Chinese medicine school, I was apprenticing with him wax on wax off scrub the um (laughs) paint
0: the fence
1: yeah paint the fence but there was a lot of just like scrubbing the fish tank and vacuuming and and then um (laughs) helping him translate because he doesn't speak much english and being invited to help translate between mandarin and cantonese and mandarin and english that's how i started learning and then very quickly as I learned stuff in school in an academic way, then I'd go to his clinic and he would go, no, no, that's not how it really works in real life. So I had the best education. I got the academic education so I could jump through all the hoops to pass the board exams and to understand all the you know medical red flags where you should refer to emergency medicine, all that stuff that they, they take care of in school. But the real deal, You know, in school, they make sure you don't hurt anybody. That's what I got from school. They make sure you know the basics and you take care of your liabilities and you can help people a little bit and mostly you make sure you don't hurt anybody. It's really for the public safety that you have these school systems and the board exams. The board exam questions had tons of things like, under this circumstance, it could be an emergency. It was just all about safeguarding those red flag situations. But how to really help people? Honestly, I learned all of that from my apprenticeship with a real deal master that holds a lineage of knowledge and wisdom and just seeing with him instead of the few patients per shift at the school clinics, you know, I would see dozens of patients per shift. And just the sheer volume of practical experience that really was the basis of what started me on this healing path, and um,
2: so, so Dr. Edith, quick question. You know, I I learned uh, my first Chinese medicine in naturopathic college. You know, it's kind of the standardized thing that you learn in most schools these days, so you get through your boards. And uh, you know, just in hindsight and having some experience with experiences with real uh, practitioners, mine were more from Japan. Um, you you find out how things really work and then in clinic things actually do work that way Uh, but what I realized now looking back what I learned in school was something that was bastardized from the start with uh, you know at the Mao takeover in China where basically he was trying to rip the spirit out of the art you know in order to make it more mechanistic and kind of similar to what they've done to medicine over here do do you agree with that
1: yeah for sure but luckily um Luckily, some of that escaped um, into into kind of like underground lineages and then um, to Japan, to um, Korea, to Taiwan. And so now there are luckily still some um, family lineage holders that are out again teaching. So we're very blessed for that.
0: With, Qig- with Qigong, um, you mentioned when you were young how the master um, – essentially healed your father and i guess they call that Y chi right when they actually a master can extend out his or her own Mm chi to literally i guess what's the theory behind that because i've i've been studying this a lot of late and i think it's fascinating Um, and it really ties into a lot of what we talk about on a more western perspective in terms of energy and energy healing and all that and essentially it's the same concept where the master is able to literally um, take his own energetics and apply that in a way to uh, influence the physiology and the energetics of another person. And I know that takes years and years of mastery, but um, what in your mind is, how does that work? And have you? you know, I'd just love to hear more of your experiences seeing that in action because I think that is where we need to be going with medicine now.
1: I have some mixed feelings about it because um, because – with my um, teacher that I apprenticed with, he cultivated his cheese since he was a child. So his story is that he came from a peasant family and his mom unfortunately passed away during labor. And, um, and his father raised him for as long as possible with the help of wet nurses in the, in the village and then gave him up for adoption with another chi master starting at age three. And so since age three, he's been practicing qigong. Wow. And so, and he spent some time in the Shaolin temples and he studied with a lot of different teachers along his path. I'm actually not totally clear from about all the, all the sources of his, um, practices and wisdom and knowledge. And, um, so I was just, you know, I, I enjoy practicing qigong, but I'm not sure that I, I will ever get up to his level of cultivation because he started at age three, right? Yeah. Uh, developmentally, like his experience of reality started from the get-go, understanding reality from that perspective. And I start as an adult. I, I'm, i um, you know, anything is possible, but I think that relying on just your personal cultivation and then bringing the chi that you, you cultivate in your dantian up and into your hands to heal somebody there is a certain limitation to how how far that could go Hmm. so with um with my teacher dr fu he had um such a deep cultivation that i saw him do stuff that i can try to mimic but i don't feel like honestly that that i i could be capable of that methodology which is why i gradually Um, Felt more resonant with things like reconnective healing, reconnection, frequency healings. And um, this idea, instead of utilizing your own chi to heal somebody, using the law of resonance to just shift your being because we are frequency generators, you know to learn actually how to generate a different frequency that in the presence of that, like tuning fork, somebody can boom ignite into a healing frequency. So I feel like that is maybe a quicker path now. So I'm very um, grateful for the practices of Qigong and I've had some incredibly powerful, earth-shattering, life-changing, reality paradigm-busting experiences um, through qigong practice. But ultimately, now I just feel more drawn to using the, this idea of resonance to heal yes. it energetically instead of having to take something out of your reservoir of qi to heal somebody. Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah,
2: it's totally, it's, dif- it's definitely safer. You know, I studied with some pretty good people in the internal martial arts for many years. And they'd always admonish that you you never discharge too much of your energy it's it's more about conserving so if you're in a situation where you do have to use your energy you know they they kind of put a number on it even they say you know you reserve 90% whether it's for healing or for fighting it's the same thing you never discharge more than 10% so you're more you know I think uh more novice qigong you know you, you're you're more in a mindset of projecting energy, but I think the old masters were more about conserving and then just letting out little bits at a time. And it was also the way nature works, you know, the nature never, um, waste energy and the masters, you know, like who you learned with, uh, you know, I think they know that better than anybody is that, yeah, they know how to put energy out, but, always just enough not too much and then of course if you don't know that then what you're going to do is drain yourself and you know when you're in practice um, you know you can see a lot of wonderful people all day long and then you get one of those people that's a little bit needy or energetically and they can you know when you're young and you don't know how to protect yourself uh, you know, you go home devastated at the end of the night because you just let somebody drain you. So if you're doing Qigong and and you're, uh, you know, deliberately projecting energy, you, you definitely have to know what you're doing. Yeah,
1: thanks for pointing that out. I would say when I observed my teacher treat people using Qigong, most of the time he did that, uh, it looked like something like just 10%. But there was one time somebody had a torn rotator cuff tear that he said, you know, actually, if I really worked on this, I can heal this completely using qigong. And so he took it on as a challenge and he really carved out space in the schedule and he um, rested a ton and he drank tons of water and then he emitted his qi and then he was exhausted afterwards. He, he did have to go back and rest for hours afterwards. So um, did it work? It did work. So (laughs) that's, those are the stories I want to hear. (laughs) So it, so I, so in the back of my mind, I'm like, wow, that's amazing. And it was what a gift that I get to witness miracles like this. And he was pretty exhausted afterwards. So I wonder if there's a better way, you know?
2: Sure. So what's the insurance code for that?
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> What's the I, Yeah. What's the diagnostic procedure codes? Yeah.
0: <laughs> so you know, you're talking about the uh, your instructor who, from the age of three, became this qigong master, and maybe that's why he inca- reincarnated here. This was the the story, the narrative that he knew he was going to go through. And we have these, you know, at certain times we have these people, these these souls that come in to to show us the way. And um this is a kind of a cool segue, I think, into your story of your the little one that was right next to you, your your son. And you know you you talk about it in the book, and it's a really fascinating um, topic here in a, in a story about how um, you came to conceive your your oldest child and how he essentially came to you. Uh, in what, in a dream state, in in other forms to um, tell you, hey, mom, um, you're going to conceive me. And well, tell us a little bit about this story, because this was one of the more fascinating things in your book.
1: All right. um, So this is just going to be storytelling hour.
0: (laughs) This is what we're all about here.
1: (laughs) Um, Well, like probably many listeners listening to this, you're um, you're a lover of nature and you want to live in a more conscious way. And um, Dave and I just weren't planning to have children because we see that the the we humans haven't figured out how to live peacefully on this planet mm-hmm. without messing everything up. And um, it just didn't seem responsible to bring more humans to this planet until we have a more... Um, awake and enlightened way of living gently and kindly and lovingly on this planet. And so like a lot of hippie rebels out there, we were like, you know, our contribution to society is not having children. You know, that's that was our mindset back then.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, but back in 2013, I went away to this amazing retreat called the Dark Room Meditation Retreat with a teacher named Muheen. And so, you know, every tradition has a darkness meditation. Have you guys ever done any darkness meditation practices?
0: Um so I took a, a mindfulness course in San Francisco, actually, uh, when my wife and I were pregnant with our first son, and we did um we did a darkness meditation, but it wasn't to the intent uh and in fact you might even know this gal because she's in San Francisco, uh Nancy Bard. Bardaki, are you have you ever heard of her? She, she's an amazing mindfulness coach and author. Uh, anyways, we did a full like three month intensive mindfulness course with her, and wow. part of that was a darkness mindfulness. And It is trippy, it's like very psychedelic, and that was that was just you know over a short amount of time, nothing like you did. So, this is one of the things I wanted to get into with. So, this is great. So, Please uh, tell our audience exactly what this was and what your experience was, because I think everybody should do this. Um, Troy Casey, who was a guest on our show, did something similar as well, and it, it literally changed his life. Um, so please um, go into this and explain uh, what this whole process is and what your experience was.
1: Okay, so this will go back go back to the child uh, conception in a moment, but... <laughs> I guess your your audience doesn't mind tangents too much, I hope.
0: We're all about the tangents. That's where the meat <laughs> of life is.
1: Okay. So in 2013, I felt really excited and drawn to do this uh, darkroom meditation retreat. And the teacher's name is Jasmuheen. And she rents out this special building in Thailand at Mantak Chia's retreat center. Everybody's probably heard of Mantak mm-hmm. Chia. He has a retreat center called Tao Gardens that has a specific building built to mimic the dark cave meditation experience right the ancient yogis the chigo masters the um the egyptian alchemists and then the kogi mamas in uh colombia they they their teachers and seers are actually raised in a dark cave up until age i think 18 or some of them wow. later, um where they they see the psychedelic, non-physical reality as the more dominant reality, and this physical matter is just a projection of that. So I had read about it in various books, and I really wanted to go experience it. And so um, Mentak Chia has, has a lot of retreats, but he, his, his methodology is for a woman Felt a little bit more male, and I just didn't feel as resonant with it. So Jasmuheen is this very sweet, soft, feminine woman, and um, she also hosts this retreat in in Tao Garden. So it was eleven days with nine days and nine nights in complete darkness. So the first day, or uh-huh. my is my, um, my family being too loud.
0: Uh, it's it's okay. We definitely hear the chatter, but it's okay. It adds to the, the life of your discussion. Um, Sorry, so,
1: no, I don't have like a studio condition. Uh, oh, that's
0: okay. So you were nine days of darkness. Is that right?
1: Yes. So it's an 11-day retreat. The first day you go in there to get situated and get acclimatized to the building. And so um, the way the building is set up is it has two stories of bedrooms surrounding the perimeter of the building. And the center is a meditation hall. And all the corners, they pad it with padding so that if you (laughs) bump into something, you won't hurt yourself. Wherever there is a a corner to turn, they dangle little balloons so that you bump your head into a soft balloon and you know, oh, I got to turn left or right. Um, Wow. Did your
0: your eyes adjust a bit to where you could start to see these forms and see stuff? Or was it that dark where you were constantly blinded by the dark? Well,
1: um, the first day, they keep the lights on so you learn to navigate it. Uh, People bring blindfolds so that they could practice navigating the building. And then... The, at the end of that first night lights out and then it's nine days and nine nights of complete darkness not one single photon of light because the building has windows but they're all boarded up so there's airflow but no light coming in and then there's staff that wears night vision goggles to come <laughs> service the building and so they come through i think like four or five layers of dark curtains to come into the building
0: wow
1: and so there's some. Um, meditation mats and you figure out basically you walk from your room and you kind of paw through and you count one, two, three, four, five, six. Okay. That's my mat. And sometimes people accidentally get on somebody else's mat and you just, you know, work it out. But after the first two or three days, people get into that state where their intuition is so heightened that people stop Like the first day or two is pretty funny. People go, ouch, you know, they bump into a piece of furniture or something or they bump into somebody else and they go, sorry, even though you're supposed to be in silence, people are hear these little, oh, shit, Mm -hmm. ouch, you know, these little sounds periodically and then it stops happening. There's this graceful flow that takes over by about the third day and everybody's in their state and people have different experiences but i started seeing the auras of all the furniture all the walls i could just see it so it was a non-issue it was very easy to navigate after you could that that um when when
0: you say you see the auras are you talking literally like a third eye perspective of the energetics of them or you are you saying your eyes adjusted
1: well, you know, before I, I explain this, I don't want to say this and limit anybody's experience. Some people listening to this might do a darkness meditation retreat in the future. So just bear in mind that everybody has a different experience and this is just mine. Um, cool. the, the furniture had its physical edge and then I would see a glow around it. And so it took some time to get used to because I would sit down on a chair on a bed and I would sit right here and I was like, oh, and I would fall my butt because that's just the aura of it. And I realized that just means, okay, that's, that's the energy radiating from an object and I need to still use my hand to find the physical object wow that that's how the space it emanated energies that I could very clearly see. It wasn't just kind of a subtle perception
0: wow my but whole body's is imp- t- my whole body's tingling right now with you telling me this because it just oh, I love this because it really just reiterates everything we talk about here that about energy and about how everything is energetic everything's alive. Bears mentioned this before a rock is alive in that sense um so you know, And having that experience, well, I'm sorry to interrupt, go ahead, but this is so fascinating to me. I really want to go do this. This is amazing.
1: Yeah, so they say that um, the, the chemistry of it is that your melatonin levels get saturated, and then by about the third day, you start producing consistent doses of DMT, and, and the visionary experience um, kicks in deeper and deeper, and then it just keeps accelerating you know, and it's, you're, you're held in this. What's beautiful is that um, it's not the kind of ass kickery that people seem to have with ayahuasca, where it's just very, very strong and a a lot of intensity. It was this soft, prolonged state of visionary um, access. And the way I explain this to people is like, everybody who meditates has, has had that experience of these insights that come to you, and when you have the insight, it's this inner knowingness, or maybe a thought comes to you, and you have a physical experience of, of, of a, a surge of energy, right? But in dark room, that is accompanied by a three D high def omnivision movie that's played out at the same time so the clarity is just so much more heightened and um and it's prolonged so you can revisit that and get deeper and deeper insights over a prolonged number of days you know so it's um a lot of my questions about life and reality, why am I here, what was my past life, what will be my future life, like a lot of those questions got answered. But on a very practical level, too, I, I was trying to build a website, and I just sat, and I was like, what's the website going to look like? It was just shown to me. The whole layout of the website, the visuals, the graphics, everything was shown in a flash, and I just quickly jotted it down in my notebook. That was another trippy thing in that state. Trying to write notes, I ended up filling an entire journal from front to back with notes during those nine days and nine nights in darkness. Write,
0: writing in darkness. So you, your writing was you were it was legible.
1: My writing was completely legible. I, I couldn't believe it. So every time I would write in a notebook, I would fold down the corner and flip to the next page so I knew that that page was already um, accounted for and go to the next blank page. And I ended up filling a whole notebook of insights and some things I still don't understand, like geometries that were shown to me. I don't know what what they're about. You know, Sometimes I had the experience of different guides coming in To give messages and they would show up with geometric forms instead of like a face or you know like that they didn't seem quite human like they came came in as a sometimes blobs of plasma or geometric structures so a lot of really interesting and trippy things happen in dark rooms. this (laughs) is
2: what's really what's really great is it forces you to use your own faculties and i think You know, ayahuasca and a lot of things, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, And a lot of people are using that these days. But what you're doing is taking uh, a substance and looking through the world through that lens and not necessarily, you know, honing your own faculties. And, you know, the, the ancient techniques of all time, sure, they would maybe change stations every once in a while with a botanical but more than not they relied on honing their own faculties and not relying on outside substances so i think there's kind of a tendency in the western world these days to reach for something that's going to make the journey a little bit easy but what you're describing it it made you do the work
1: well not only that um but in in chinese medicine there's always this understanding of um of short-term versus long-term and you do get the short-term visions but in Chinese medicine these kinds of things that totally blast you off into that world that is um, just on the other side of the veil you basically have to burn up a lot of your kidney essence in order to, for that blast off to happen and so you need to do a lot of recultivation to rebuild that whereas in darkroom the whole thing you—it's not just a philosophy. You know an experience that is a deeply nurturing and nutritive experience. For example, the first three days, this is just a very pra- – it's not like a psychedelic thing at all. It's just a very practical realization that I grew up in cities all my life, and I had never actually experienced true darkness. Mm. And experiencing true darkness felt like something that I didn't even know I was super hungry for. The best analogy is imagine if you lived in a polluted city like Beijing or Shanghai all your life. And then suddenly somebody went, plop, teleported you to a rainforest or to any kind of pristine forest with just so much chi and prana and oxygen in the air. And you go... Whoa, I have no idea. Air is that nutritious. The same thing with the darkness. I had no idea darkness was so nutritious and that I was so deeply hungry for it until the first day of dark room. And I was not sleep deprived at all, but I slept most of the first two or three days. And then the third day I felt so rested so rested that I hardly slept a wink for the next six or seven days. And, but the whole time I felt restful. There was not like a exertion of energy ever. The whole thing was very restorative and nutritive, and I came out of there a new person feeling like I had really built myself up instead of tearing myself down, which is what I hear. I haven't done ayahuasca, but I, this is what I hear people say. Uh, you know, they, they have a big beat up, they purge a lot, it's like rah, 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 it's, in some ways there's, um, it's kind of the yin and yang of the yeah. experience, you know, so the ayahuasca journey sounds very young to me and I feel like we already have enough yang in our society and most of us are probably deficient in that nutritive, restorative, rebuilding of our essences that, that we don't get enough in this society.
2: Absolutely. And when you're using the plant substances, what you said is so true, it does still require your juice to look through those lens. So it does burn up a lot of kidney chi. And that's why afterwards, people are pretty exhausted, you know, uh, taking any kind of drug and even a, a good botanical drug taken as a sacrament, it still requires your energy.
0: Yeah, Yeah, I So So everything. uh, Sorry, Mike, go ahead. I was just gonna say, um, and in the chat here, people are really um, interested in in this. So if we could, uh, if I could get some more information from you after the chat, I'd love to put this in the show notes for whether where um, this retreat is or others that you know about, because this is really kind of um, uh, really reaching across to a lot of people right now. And that's something we talk about a lot is, um, you know, having more natural forms of um, psychedelic experience that doesn't require um, some sort of drug. And uh, this sounds like uh, something you could do even you know, uh, yourself blocking out your room for a day and a night just at your house to experience darkness. And one thing it seems like that people immediately have is this notion of fear of darkness, which comes probably from thousands of years of us you know, being in darkness and having predators and such. Um, but really what you're doing too is you're kind of mastering that fear and opening up these channels of, of wisdom and knowledge that are ancient inside of us. And so that's a very healing practice. It sounds like too, that you went through Dr. E in terms of, like you said, coming out, feeling so fulfilled. And then one more question I had for you, were you fasting during this time or were you, what was uh, kind of the nutritional aspect to the experience?
1: So that was another piece that I, I felt was a big difference between how Mantak Chia's retreats were ran, run. He had people take a very trypt, tryptophan-rich set of foods every day. I, I can't remember. There's like an egg and the sesame, and I don't know if there's turkey, <laughs> I can't remember. Um, but Jasmuheen is known as the um, grandmother of Western breatharianism and I have an interview with her on my podcast where she explains why she doesn't love the term breatharianism mm-hmm. and she calls it source feeding, mm. like dropping back into the state where you're nourished by source. And so she's like, we're not, oh, fat I like that. we are being fed hey. constantly. Um, and so yeah, I
2: love that. Anything you can elaborate more on that? Cause uh, you know, we've, we've dealt into that subject too. So um yeah, anything you can share with that?
1: Well, I do want to. I'm not the expert. <laughs> I'm I'm just a student of this stuff. Honestly, I'm very humbled to be in her presence, and she. We've done some collaborations, and um, she has an amazing podcast interview on my podcast. So, if you guys are interested, thedreshow.com, the Doctor E Show.com, there has an amazing two-part interview there too. There's lots of juicy stuff that I think you guys will love.
0: Wim Hof so, too. <laughs> I'm sorry? I said in Wim Hof.
1: In Wim Hof and all kinds <laughs> of legends like that. So please check it out if it calls to you. So um, so with Jasmine's Dark Room Retreat, she has people be flexible. And so juices are served, but only juices during that time. Mm. And um, so every day she guides you in um, – she rings a bell, and then you have 15 minutes to – Paw through the darkness into the meditation hall. And then she does different practices every day. But every morning she starts with a body love meditation practice where you massage and communicate with every cell of your being and give gratitude for every cell of your being. And we understand from our experience that cultivating this kind of relationship with our body is really like the, the first step in even asking your body to do anything. It's like the communication protocol of gratitude and love is the first step before breatharianism or dematerialization, rematerialization, bilocation, all that stuff. You have to have cultivated this loving relationship with your body first. And so some listeners out there are like, I'm not really interested in levitation or bilocation or any of that stuff, but maybe you're interested in healing. Well, who are we to tell our body to heal when we haven't even cultivated a relationship with it yet, you know? It's just like having like some stranger come to your house and say, hey, I'm going to demand that you do this. It's like, who are you? So- in our society, I realized we are so disconnected in, on all of these levels, including we have this body that we hardly even notice is there, you know? So, so that was a profound practice, just to notice you have a body and give thanks and gratitude. And then you ask your body, what is, this is how Jasmine leads the practice. It's like, what is, what is your prana percentage, I think she calls it, And what is your cosmic hydration quotient? I might, it was a few years ago, but every day you talk to your body and ask it these questions. And so, based on that, then you decide what foods or drinks are needed to supplement what is not cosmically being nourished already or source fed already. And so in her work, she doesn't think everybody's path is to become a breatharian, you know, just like in veganism, a lot of people like everybody should be vegan. It's like, well, what good does this kind of militant approach do? It just creates more war upon wars, you know, how about we just go back to listening to our bodies, speaking lovingly to it, and then allow the body to guide us what it needs or doesn't need at every moment. So in the retreat, I really learned that about my body that is a very flexible thing. And and every day, every moment it's going to speak to me what it's asking for. And it so happened in the retreat that my body kept saying it was 100% prana fed and it was 98% cosmically hydrated. Wow. So because of that, I listened and um, the medical textbooks say that if you've fast for too long. You might lose lots of weight. You might have all kinds of like, um, uncomfortable experiences. I didn't have any uncomfortable experience because it was motivated by what my body said it was ready to experience. The cosmic percentage, because it was 98, I was like, okay, if I do dry fasting, I think I can handle it. So I took it one day at a time and did some dry fasting. And, um, this is where I really don't want people to test it because dry fasting without support and supervision can be quite dangerous. So please you guys, um, if you at all are interested in exploring dry fasting, really listen to your body and make sure you have the support system. The medical textbooks say that if you dry fast for more than three days, you could start to have kidney problems. So it's, it's serious, you know, don't, don't push it too much. But um, we were, showering every day so I was getting water through the pores and it was in complete darkness and I wasn't out in the elements in the desert or anything so day by day I um I ended up going until four and a half days without drinking water, and I didn't eat anything the whole time. So I kind of dry fasted the first half and then just drank water the second half. Again, um, please don't push this kind of limit, you know. And um, by the fifth day, Jasmuhin called me into her her room and said, you know, I, I got the message that you should end your dry fast for safety. And so I started drinking water. You know, but hmm. for me, it was something really powerful. these days, so many people are get getting into fear because um, supplies are supply chains are are dropping off, and we're worried about um you know food and things supplies not being available and I feel like the ultimate seventy two hour preparedness kit is to have gone through some experiences where you feel. This truth, which is that we can be nourished in alternative ways. But it requires a lot of deep inner cultivation. You know, when you're in a state of um, panic and fear and stress, you know, when I'm hustling around the city, meeting project deadlines, driving through traffic and road rage. I am not in a breatharian state. I can definitely feel that and I can feel how, oh my god, I'm really hungry for a muffin right now because it's so stressful right now. So it's just funny to notice that the same human being under different circumstances, if your nervous system is under different kinds of stress, your nutritional needs also change. So in dark room, one of the practices was I asked my physical body, my mental body, my emotional body, and my spiritual body what it needs and there were some differences and i saw that my emotions weren't stable enough to become a breatharian and that i need to honor that and not pretend i'm more enlightened than i actually am you know and so you know, so doc, doc, finding that balance for everybody
2: Dr. Dr. E there's <laughs> a real quick there's a type of um Laboratory assessment that takes chemistry and translates it into electricity. It's called ionization analysis. And what's been found is that the average body, even the person that's not, you know, adept at fasting derives at least 70% of their energy right from the atmosphere. And uh, what food does is uh, it's a crude way of driving energy that takes as much energy, you know, and, and just processing it. But then the energy from food is actually then used to get the 70% out of the atmosphere. So uh, all happened, of us, whether we know it or not, are deriving most of our nutrition from the atmosphere. So, you know, with episode, that work, yeah, with know, that the, work uh, it helps to understand it. Yeah, it's, it's possible for anybody to... To survive 72 hours.
1: Also, um, in totally conventional medical science, it's been found that about 70% of your detoxification happens through the breath, only 30% through peeing, pooping, and sweating. And so everybody- So maybe has-
2: wearing a face mask isn't that good of an idea?
1: <laughs> yeah. So maybe that, there's something key about that 70% mark that we're all hybrid vehicles and we're 70% um, free energy device at this current moment in human history. And about 30%, we still need to burn physical fuel. It's mm. it's good for us to just get real with that. So in case um, supply chains fall off, that we don't freak out too much, I think.
0: Yeah. Good and point. and uh, it's really interesting that you were in the darkness, not necessarily because we did a, uh, a an alpha cast on breatharianism with P.A. Schraub. I'm going to. Straubinger. Straubinger. Thank you. also was a friend of mine. Yes. Yes. So we talked about that and which is amazing because you were doing that festival, the Pranic Festival, right? Mm -hmm. Or the, and, um, I wanted to actually go to that. I was very aware of that. (laughs) Um, but, uh, Anyways, uh, one of the big things they talk about um, is the idea of of getting the prana from the sun, the sun energy. And when we talk about these notions of transmutation and everything being um, informational fields, that that is just one of the informational fields we can pull from and that the very atmosphere, the very essence of the air around us is another one. Uh, And so having clean air and clean water and all that is important. But just um, the other thing that you talk about in your book a, a lot is our very our thought forms, the essence of how we think. And you, as you talk about gratitude and all this is probably the biggest factor in our health. And mainstream conventional science and medicine has continually shown this with, with studies. And this is something that I think the biggest thing I've pulled out of, from your book is that um, the mindset and our, our, just the way that we grapple with um, our daily reality plays more into our health and our physical uh manifestations of of kind of our happiness and everything than anything more than food more than the even the the water and everything the air the quality the air is literally it's our mind over matter and that was something that we talk about a lot but it is i would say that's probably one of the biggest takeaways for me from your book um
1: yes, you know. yes and um and that doesn 't mean you don 't also do the physical stuff, but you do it from a different perspective because um, sometimes when you eat the eat crappy food um, it makes you cranky and then you it 's harder to meditate it 's harder to do your inner work it 's harder to go through and um, work through those limiting beliefs and the disempowering thoughts and I think everybody can agree that that is the really important work but all those physical level things like getting proper sunshine during the day sleeping in darkness proper hydration um, moving your body all of that is ultimately in service of you elevating your consciousness to a more expanded healthy state so um so i I guess the big difference with super wellness that my students tell me is that, wow, from that perspective, finally, I really love doing the juicing and all these practices. It's It's not because I want to fit into my skinny jeans or look great for a photo shoot. It's motivated from a much deeper, richer place. And I realize now I feel really in love with these practices because it's so deep and so rich. It's not some superficial thing that society told me I had to adhere to, you know?
0: Yeah. So yeah, your, your um, book is, by the way, not to, your book is designed in that way where you have your health, H E A L T H design. So before you get to thought, the T in the health, um, we go you take us through all those the physical mater- more material aspects to get to that point of enlightenment per se so that you can understand how then the thoughts play so i i should have probably said that first of course um but uh yeah so and we talked about this a while ago in our we did a whole podcast like a year ago on veganism versus paleo kind of stuff and in the end we just say that's all just food and really it's your thought forms that matter so when you're at a certain elevated sense of thought you're much less likely to go wait in line for mcdonald's even though if you are in that thought and for some reason you're out on a night just on a rare occasion and it's all there is you could transmute those toxins if you're in that elevated sense so first you got to do the work to get there but my point is once you're there you become a mental ninja and we don't have to have the fears of the supply, like you're saying, the supply chain and the physicality as much, because we've done the work to then be empowered to control our own reality. So that's kind of what I was trying to get to.
1: Yes, totally. You, I couldn't have said it better. But um, that so about the hamburger or whatever <laughs> did you say? That the-
0: McDonald's line going into the drive-through and feeling guilty because you're about to eat just toxic stuff, you know, but it's like, oh, I'm drunk. I've had a night out and that's all. Not that I mean, I've done that for years and I quit drinking. Actually, I just celebrated and I don't even, I even talk about this publicly, but I'm a year in not drinking alcohol now. I haven't had a sip of alcohol in over a year now. Um, I enjoy kombucha and I enjoy other stuff and I just decided it wasn't for me anymore so I don't have those late nights bars don't make any sense for me anymore uh, right. going to a bar really um, but I used to have those nights as a DJ for years where it was like you're very limited in options at two in the morning what you're going to eat mm-hmm. and so we'd find ourselves in the drive-through ideally of more like an in and out or something <laughs> but still you have this like guilty kind of oh what am I doing to myself right now as I'm ordering Taco Bell I'm- and i'm shocked <laughs> to hear that
2: about you michael
0: <laughs> so, so but the, here's the, the, anyways here's the way
1: i like to piece that that all that whole conversation together is that um, what are we here for if yeah, we're, think that the meaning of life is for us to low uh, to to learn and grow and and expand our consciousness and and become a lot more aware Right. A lot of the foods that we use, actually, everybody's had experience with this. Sometimes you don't want to feel the feelings and you use food to dull your senses. Right. And so um, but sometimes we do that consciously because things are too overwhelming. And I don't have any problems with that if we bring a consciousness to it. If you've had a super hectic, crazy day and people just bombarding you with requests and you didn't even have downtime for one second, you come home and eat a pint of ice cream or a bag of potato chips to decompress. In that moment, that is actually an act of love for yourself.
2: You know, Dr. E and... uh... it's,
1: It's like, it's just inappropriate. It's like, this is your me time. You can make it a sacred ice cream eating it sounds funny right like just put yourself in a sacred cocoon and just drop into that self-love in that moment that is the chances are you'll just eat one or two scoops and put it away instead of binge eating tubs and tubs of the stuff
2: Um, exactly you know some of the most difficult clinic cases i ever had were the purest people that were like you say very militant about what they thought they were supposed to eat and you know, very dogmatic about things and they, you know, ate more pure than anybody and were wondering why they couldn't get well. Whereas their friends who were, you know, more indiscriminate, never had the health problems they had. And so it really boils down to attitude. It's not about the end result that you're a vegan because you're supposed to be. It's like, well, if you're a vegan, you do it because it's the thing that tastes best. It brings you the most joy and and everything just kind of lines up, otherwise you should be doing something else.
1: Right, and so the way I see the diet piece or any other lifestyle piece is like, if you have a choice, why make life harder on yourself? So when you eat certain foods and you feel like crap afterwards, and then you sit down to meditate and your brain is all inflamed and you're restless and it's really hard to get still, it's like, well, am I making this too hard on myself? Maybe by cleaning up my diet, I could just have an easier journey into that that um, awakening state that i'm I'm seeking with my meditation practice. So from that perspective, it doesn't feel like militant or you know some rigid dietary rules. it's just a, a state of observation. Maybe yeah. if I eat a little cleaner, my meditations go deeper and more rich, more juicy. maybe. Let's try it out and see what happens. And so all of these physical practices can be aligned with that same attitude. And then you reach a point, like Mike says, where maybe it doesn't matter. And then you might eat some crappy junk food just to test yourself. <laughs> and then when you test yourself, you might fail.
0: That or you say, what am I doing? This is tastes disgusting. You talk in your book about mindfulness eating which is a uh, fantastic. And you have a great story about a d- guy who really loves Doritos. Yes. I used to be, I used to be that guy. And, um, he, uh, goes through the whole process of mindfulness and fasting, I believe, and actually extends his fast a bit. It's a great little story. And then he goes back to the Doritos and he does the mindful eating the Dorito and he tastes. I think he says it tastes like chemicals and cardboard. Yes, and And then he does the test where he just eats it gratuitously, you know, just like you normally would watching that's football, true. like, ah, and he's like, oh, that's good. But then he went back to the mindfulness and realized, oh, that's like chemicals and cardboard. And uh, that's an amazing point uh, that the, it's crazy how like we can just get into these modes and not even realize what we're doing. And um, especially with the hecticity of modern life, you just get into these um, patterns. And if we just step back and, and get more mindful about what we're doing um, immediately our body will, will will start I guess listening to our body more and, and it'll tell us these things and um, so going back to the waiting in line at McDonald's I don't do it anymore um, I drive by those places and I actually have a lot of compassion and and I want to like go into those places and and basically scream glyphosate glyphosate but <laughs> um, which is really the killer that we all need to be talking about here it's in all that food that franken food but um, you, I think, as you get more evolved, you just won't even be attracted to that. And actually, probably what would be more attractive is just a, you know go out and garden to your garden and, and just eat some snap peas or something. So, um, anyways, uh, fascinating. We could go down this rabbit hole forever in terms of you know listening to our bodies and and the really the amazing machine that our bodies are, right? And you talk about this in your book a lot. Um, and uh, you know, what are some what are some practices that you would recommend for people to get more in tune with their body and start learning how to listen to it better so that we can let it be a guide more for us?
1: Okay, about the diet piece, we came up with something called the fan diet, which is actually not even a diet, it's like an anti-diet. Mm-hmm. So it's, I, I joke and it's panned out to be true that this is the diet that ends all diets. Simple three rules of thumbs to follow. Every time you eat, ask yourself three questions. Number one, is this fun and tasty? F stands for fun. Number two, when I eat this, do I feel alive? A is for alive. Number three, does it cause no negative effects? N is for no negative effects. If it fulfills all three rules, we're a fan. (laughs) if it breaks any of these rules that's the thing if it breaks any of these rules we're not a fan especially the fun and tasty one because i you know you guys work with a lot of health nuts and i do too and a lot of times people come in and they're eating perfectly the so-called healthy diet but they're not having any fun and they're um It tastes disgusting to them. And so they're eating under this kind of like rigid, militant, stressful state. And so in that state, we cannot digest properly, right? And just the stress alone is maybe causing some negative impact on our health. And um, I always joke that if you eat under stress, you can't digest properly. And then you just make very expensive poop. (laughs) So I recommend... The fan diet
2: to everybody. Fair. So Dr. E, how do we, uh, apply these same principles to exercise? Because just like eating, you know, exercise can become very rigid. I'm one of those people that thought that my workout was no good unless I just had to crawl off the track or something totally exhausted. So, uh, with years, you realize, wow, that's just keeping you in a constant state of stress and tearing your body down. So, and I know you're, you've been a great athlete and and you coach people. So um, how do we go about that?
1: Well, you know, when I came up with the fan diet, it was just about the diet, but I realized you can take the, that same, those three principles to every choice you make in life. Am I bringing joy and fun? And um, does this feel joyful and exciting to me and when I do this practice does it cause me to feel alive and then does it injure me you know no negative effects I think we can ask those same three questions about every activity we choose to participate in so that that flow of joy and passion and excitement ends up guiding us to all the decisions of life including food exercise um, what kind of business we should start what kind of business partner we should choose all of it
2: Perfect. Okay. So now that brings us to the next generation. And I know you've got a, your own crew there and that's the most important job. Uh, I think we have as adults is bringing up happy, healthy children that are going to maybe guide the ship a little bit more responsibly in the future here. So, um, how do we raise kids, uh, you know, to, to grow up without all the hangups we grew up with?
1: Um, I guess I never answered Mike's question about the conception oh, of sorry. Child and all of that. Oh, go ahead. I think they're being a little bit loud. Let me ask them to, now that we're going to, can we turn down your volume of the, the bouncy thing? Hun? Yeah. Thanks. Good. Our girl. So we have a five year old and a five and a half month old. And our girl is just like, Oh, she's got lots of energy. <laughs> grab everything and jump and bounce on her bouncy thing. Um, so I started on the journey about the darkroom meditation retreat. And it was right after that, that we, I came back to San Francisco and my intuition had skyrocketed after darkroom and I could feel everything. I could feel the sensations of practically read our neighbor's thoughts. Wow. And if they were in a bad mood, it was hard for me to sleep. And many people listening, maybe you've had experiences like that on your spiritual journey, your intuition awakens and before it stabilizes, you're just feeling everything or you're, you're an empath and you're feeling everything and you haven't quite mastered how to manage all of that. So it can be really exhausting. And so, thank goodness, my husband agreed to let me drag him to live in the countryside. So, I maintained my practice in San Francisco, and we moved an hour out to Sebastopol, California, which is a beautiful countryside, and uh, commuted back and forth. So, living in Sebastopol, a lot of things change very quickly. For example, I was always... Um, had a hard time waking up in the morning without an alarm. And to tuck myself to bed at a somewhat decent hour, I had to really be disciplined about it. You know, like look at the clock and say, oh, it's 10 o'clock, I should start tucking into bed. Living a natural lifestyle where we were in a tiny little cottage with an acre of land, nothing major, but just just space to grow some fruits and vegetables. There was no Wi-Fi hub anywhere except for our own. There was no cell towers. There were no street lights glaring into our bedrooms or anything like that. So very quickly, my circadian rhythm got synchronized where I would naturally wake up in the morning and naturally feel sleepy at night. That was a completely new experience for me, someone that lived in a city all my life. Just that. And then very quickly after that, my menstrual cycle that was always slightly irregular got synchronized to 28 days, month after month after month. And so I had been using a natural tracking method to track my cycle. Oh, honey, we're trying to record. Um. So I was tracking my natural cycle, and I noticed that I would ovulate clockwork on day 14, and everything just like snapped into place like that. My energy started feeling great, and with no, um, with no change in any other habits, just the day and night cycle and the monthly cycle, everything got snapped into place. And then my meditation practices got skyrocketed the clarity, the insights, just from living a more natural lifestyle. That's why I I, um, focus so much on this piece of spending time in nature and sunlight during the day, darkness at night. These free things are so potent and so powerful, and we don't give them the credit that they deserve because we've been brainwashed into valuing things that are expensive. But it turns out the most potent and powerful medicines are the free things like natural sunlight like fresh air like time in nature like resting in complete darkness at night the gifts are enormous and for me i just my nervous system was completely different my fertility cycles completely different um and then my meditations deepen and that's when our son started visiting over and over and over in my dreams, in my meditations. And we said, you know, we're not planning to have children. And he kept showing us these images that, that he had been watching me and Dave for a long time and that he had scoured the cosmos, just like all spirits do. Scouring the cosmos for your perfect set of Family, parents, community to incarnate into. And we're it. And I start telling Dave, and Dave's like, Now your hormones are changing. We can't have kids. We don't have mm-hmm. enough money. And we're just I we'll lose all of our freedoms. No, 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 we can't have kids. But then day after day, month after month, the same boy kept showing up. And so one day I'm nudging him like the boy is here again. Mm-hmm. And and he says, Oh. He kind of rolls his eyes, very resistant. And so in the state of half-wake, half-dream state, we end up having a three-way cosmic powwow. Dave and the baby and me all talking. And so Dave is having a conversation with the baby, and I'm kind of channeling what he's saying through me. But while I'm channeling his words, I'm seeing these amazing, beautiful, multi-dimensional visions that he's showing me. And he shows me how every baby spirit is scouring the cosmos to find their perfect permutations of families and parents. But he showed me this huge ocean, this web work of all these new, this new generation of children and babies that are coming to the planet right now. And they were orbs of light connected with uh, like a web work of light. And he says, look, every one of these babies have scoured the cosmos to find their perfect parents. And we figured out such a elegant and complex set of circumstance for us to come down to the planet and blanket the earth with this new light. Just so you know, your choice of conceiving me or not, you have the free will to choose, but you're not choosing me. You're choosing this this entire web work and if you choose not to incarnate conceive me then he went and he disappeared the whole web work and said we'll just have to go back to the drawing board and find a new set of uh ways all of us we'll have to change
0: uh <laughs> there's, the some, plan. So, there's some pressure, no pressure
1: there or anything." <laughs> So it was and it was so interesting. I, I haven't told this part of the story when that was happening. My womb space went wow, wow, wow wow, wow. like something was being programmed into my womb during that time. And the funny story after that, Dave um said, "All right, well, in that case, uh, let me think about it. All right, let me think about it." and so so he went to yoga one day. And in Shavasana, he also met the boy. And he's like, the boy's pretty cute. Yeah, he's pretty cute. <laughs> and, then, and then shortly after that, um, he's like, all right, I, let me think about it. I, I think I can do it. I think I can do it. And if we had conceived that month, our boy could have been a Scorpio. And I'm a Scorpio. Have a strong personality. And Dave said we cannot have two Scorpios in this family. So he wouldn't touch me with a ten-foot pole all month long, because he could feel the energy of the baby spirit at this point, right? And so the subsequent month, um, the moment was right, and it was this um, a conscious conception where you could feel the baby was there in the moment that he was conceived. I experienced my womb breathing, like there was a, a nostril in my womb, and I didn't have to take a pregnancy test. It was just very clear that he had um, it had happened, and and the whole journey of pregnancy, all the choices were guided by him, and. Um, I, I hadn't even thought about having children, much less, like, how are how are we going to give birth? So I start researching, and I was really drawn to the home birthing. And then that evolved naturally into how we um, did attachment. I, I didn't know these terms before, but everything was just natural, guided by me listening to what he wants or needs. And because of the con- the circumstance of his conception, I always just experienced him as my friend. You know, one of the things he taught us preconception is he said, look, the reason you guys are so hesitate to conceive me and to become a parent is that you have the wrong thinking. You have a very clear idea about parenthood that is completely wrong. When you meet me, you'll realize that parenthood is completely different with me at least. Their previous generations had to raise you in a certain way, but this new generation has a completely different paradigm with the kids and with family life and with what it means to be a parent. And then that has, it has bared out to be true. He, he's guided us every step of the way. When it came time to do, um, to start preschool, we found this amazing nature preschool that was Reggio Emilia based. They did arts and crafts and, gardening and they were outside all day long and it was just so sweet and then there was was some change of staff and it became kind of rigid in the school where it's like you've got to do story time at this time of the day even if you're interested in gardening you know and then at this time you got to start do get in line and do your pee pee and poo poo time and that's when he started saying, you know, I don't like school. I want to be able to poo-poo and pee-pee whenever I want it, poo-poo and pee-pee. And, and it clicked like, wow. That's how they start indoctrinating us. Yep. That even a beautiful nature pre, uh, preschool that has gardens and, and sweetness all the way around, it starts seeping in like that. Like, no, you cannot pee and poo when your body says. Only when we say it's like, that's not going to work. So he started, um, we wanted to finish out the semester, but he started refusing to get out of the car, you know? And he wasn't even four, he was three and a half. He was like, I don't like the energy in there. And so oh. we talked to the, the head of that preschool and she said, yeah, he's got, he, you know, uh, Not everybody could be homeschooled, but your boy will definitely excel in homeschooling because he's very self-motivated, very clear about what he wants to do, doesn't want to do. And when he does want to do something and learn something, you cannot change his mind. He is just very clear that he's like, I need your help to do this. And I want to research on the internet i want all the support i want all the tools and he'll ask you day in and day out until you help him so he's super self-directed which made it very easy to eventually go down this path of unschooling which is what we're doing now
0: can you explain a little bit unschooling versus homeschooling
1: okay so again i'm new to this um i've made a new friend named dana martin who is a a world-renowned unschooling pioneer. I recommend everybody check out her work. She's a a beautiful spirit also. Um, But unschooling is a specific style of homeschooling that in many ways is even opposite to homeschooling because most homeschooling, when I go to homeschooling meetings, I noticed that there's a big population of very religious homeschoolers, people that homeschool because they, they, they want to actually kind of shield their children from the evil influences of the outside world, so to speak, you know. And so um, bring their religious um, practices in, in the home and then have a total control over the curriculum. But in a sense, it's kind of like school done on your kitchen table. Right. It's still following strictly a certain curriculum. Now, um, you know, you're as parents, you and that you love your children more than, you know, a public school teacher might in a group of 30, 40 kids. So I think probably for the most part, homeschooling, there's just a lot more attentiveness and personal time. And I, I'm a big fan of that. But unschooling is kind of the opposite. It's this idea that you don't even reference school anymore. But unschooling is not, Dana would say unschooling is not the same as unlearning or uneducating. It's just unschooling. It's learning naturally, organically, as if the school system like never existed the way that we learn as adults. Like I, you know, listen to podcasts, I read a million books, I get excited. That excited drives me one thing after another and I do projects and I meet people and I am so excited to meet people of a diversity of ages, like, you know, different generations all based on our common interests and passions. One of the things I really notice about my boy, he's only five and a half, is he's so comfortable interacting with everybody of all different ages. And because I grew up in a traditional school system, like even somebody that's one year older, I was like, ooh, are they too cool to talk to me? <laughs> you know, I had that programming because I was always age segregated and I only knew how to interact with people exactly my age or maybe one grade higher or lower. It took many years for me to realize, wow, I can learn so much from young people, from older people, from people from all walks of life. And that, that, that the, a lot of people worry about homeschooling or unschooling. It's like, how do you get socialized? Well, I think the way we socialize based on date of manufacture is a very weird concept. Now that I'm breaking free from that with my own children, I realize what weirdness I grew up with. You know, so as a side effect of following your passion, um, math, reading, history, science, all of that gets um, woven into being interested in a certain topic. For example, in the beginning, I wasn't sure we were gonna unschool. So I started um, buying these workbooks because I knew it was time for my child to learn ABCs. I could never get our boy to do a workbook for the life of me. He was like, what are you doing? This is stupid. I'm not gonna sit on my butt and write ABCs. He would humor me and write like one stroke of A and then put the pen down and run away to go play a, a game, you know? Then one day our tree in our back garden, we have a few fruit trees and um, we're growing a few vegetables back there. And our pear tree was laden with these ginormous, beautiful pears. And so he's like, I wanna go start a pear store on the street and sell some of these pears and get money to buy toys. I'm like, okay. And so we helped him um, pick the most beautiful pears. The ginormous ones were one dollar, the medium ones were fifty cents, the smaller ones were twenty-five cents. So we had to divide and calculate like them, you know, how to price them. And then he needed to make a sign. And he was like, Mama, I need you to help me make a sign that says delicious pear. One dollar, delicious pear, 50 cents. I was like, well, I guess you will have to learn your ABCs to do that. And so he was like, why don't you write it? So I wrote it on a scrap piece of paper. And then he got a piece of cardboard and he wrote P-E-A-R, delicious, and all of that. He did it all by himself. And after that, he was super interested in learning his ABCs because there was use for it. And then there's a lot of math that happens. And when we go to the farmer's market, there's tons of math that happens there. And because he decided he really likes doing math, he's, he's sometimes asked to go on the internet to do math games. So we go on Khan Academy, and he's like, just suddenly way above his supposed grade level, whatever that is, in math. And um, he loves watching cartoons and doing research. Whenever he asks me a question, we go on the internet to research. And because we do that, he's a great typist now. He's typing his own keyword search to find his favorite cartoons or to answer a question that he's dying to know about. So, as a side effect, suddenly I could never get him to learn his ABCs, and now he's way above whatever grade level standards they have out there, just because it serves a purpose of him living a joyful, exciting, passion filled life.
2: So, unschooling sounds like maybe a method to not kill natural curiosity.
1: yeah (laughs) i think so yeah just seems i Uh, don't know why it's so radical it's i i don't understand why it's so radical it's just a natural unfoldment same with attachment style parenting you know we co-slept and um nurse for as long as the kids wanted to and the whole thing just unfolded naturally and then it was after we were already doing it some people start saying oh oh I see you're doing attachment parenting and I look at them like what's that and then I look it up and all the languaging around it is like oh it's so radical it's like a radical kind of like hippie philosophy and um (laughs) None of it seems that radical when you start living it. It just seems like very unnatural unfoldment of how um, how how it is to live a joyful, healthy, balanced life.
0: I th- I the think question
2: we always used to get with our kids the most, uh, because we homeschooled all the way through as well, it was uh, people just saying, well, how do you socialize? You know, just like you mentioned. And we always just turned the question back. We said, well, how do you socialize? Your kids are in the same room with the same kids with the same teacher all year long. Uh, you know, they basically watch the clock, you know, they don't know how to focus and just kinda get something done if they want to do something and then go outside and surf or do whatever the heck they want. And um yeah, it's it's just such a natural process. Schooling should be. But um yeah, we've turned it into school. So I love this whole unschooling concept because even though we did it with our kids, I never you know, we really never thought about it. We just, you know, did our own thing. And, and a lot of people that uh, question us along the way, they said, well, how do I go about homeschooling? First thing we tell people is, well, don't tell anybody what you're doing. Because then all of a sudden, you're going to get a lot of interference and advice and everything, just kind of let it unfold. And, uh, you know, we always had a lot of projects. Uh, when my kids were a little older, uh, you know, like, uh, you know, 12, 13, 14, We just bring in different people to make it interesting. Or one year we decided to get our pilot's licenses together, you know, kind of a real life experience where you're up there and you have to learn how to read little gauges and do math and, and, you know, think on your feet and have a real life adventure. So it was fun. And, and our kids along the way, you know, even when they were, uh, you know, super young, they were just as comfortable as you said, being around adults as they were their own friends. And they also had tons of uh, friends that, they had all over the island and so it wasn't a matter of their, them being sheltered either.
1: And then um, there's also this piece of traditional schooling divides your learning into subjects such as math and science and English and all of that. Um, but I, I recently had this um, kind of a mini epiphany that if we were to divide it into different subjects it really should be divided more like this. like. Um, IQ, EQ, people talk about that, right? The more progressive schools have emotional intelligence. Like, it's like, oh, the really progressive schools are talking about being emotionally intelligent and that we should bring a little bit of mindfulness. It's like, really, (laughs) that's considered like really extreme? That's just called being a human, you know? And what about physical intelligence, body intelligence? why is that not at least like 50% of a child's upbringing and education you know why is that some something that when the budget cuts happen is the first thing that you cut that seems that seems really nuts to me body intelligence we don't even know that we have a body half the time we don't know anything about how it works and that it turns out it's this amazing biocomputer Full of mystery, full of beauty, full of magic that we just ignore until it totally breaks down one day. That is nuts that we grow up in a school system that doesn't address it at all. So body intelligent, energetic intelligence, like how to manage your energies, how to cultivate your energies, how to be responsible for the not just the quantity but the quality of energy that we bring into different situations, you know. some of the things happening in our world right now, like mob scenes, like people don't have any agency or control over their energies. So whatever the mob is doing, you get just swept up by it. And that I think has a direct, um, it's a, a direct result of an upbringing and education system that doesn't even honor anything about energy and then um, intuitive intelligence, cultivate your intuitive capacity. Um, there's a really great documentary that came out recently called Superhuman. Have you guys heard about this?
0: Yes. No. We have
1: monthly movie nights at my, at my um, wellness center and we played this movie. Um, but my boy, just he knows about me going to dark room, And sometimes I do blindfold activities. And sometimes we play games blindfolded to try to use our third eye to perceive. And so he decided he wanted to take a class because in that movie, they showcase these children that can do all kinds of things blindfolded. Like they can read books blindfolded, they can kick a soccer ball around blindfolded, They're, they have a fully open third eye. And it's been found that some like between age five to age 12 is the best time frame to cultivate that capacity, because once you hit puberty, it becomes much harder. Mm-hmm. And so um, this weekend, for example, my boy is going to take a series of classes starting this weekend from some of the people that are associated with that movie because he watched the movie with me and he's like, oh, that's cool. I want to take a class and learn how to do that. And so whatever it is, I think this new generation of children, also my daughter um, had some messages to share when she was conceived and during pregnancy about the, this new generation of children. Um, are bringing forth a different way of being human and so the The indigo children the indigos the crystals the rainbows they have all these different names Mm -hmm. i think we are all going through these stages ourselves of awakening to more expanded states of being and these are just terms for the different stages i think um so that means that the education system has to be in harmony with what they're trying to do. Like they incarnated on the planet with this um, a purpose, a mission. And even for people of our generation, the school system was badly outdated. But it's just like completely irrelevant for their generation is what I'm discovering. You
0: know? Couldn't agree so more
1: if we can get a little bit close to that, it would be cultivating more body intelligence, energy intelligence, intuitive intelligence, and spiritual intelligence. So I like to call these the six intelligences. Like the IQ and EQ is still necessary, but the other four, you know, and I'm sure there's more, but this is, if we were to kind of, logically analyze the education journey it needs to cover these bases i think and our school system doesn't even begin to touch this level of thinking
2: yeah i think education now has become child abuse uh just i i can't even imagine sending my kid you know our kids are are old now or older but um, even back when they were in school the school system wasn't even an option I mean, we didn't even consider it. And now it's gone so extreme compared to back then, which was, you know, quite a few years back. Uh, I just don't see how any parent in good consciousness could send their kid there. So I had a a
1: recent epiphany about that, that I'd like to share, though, that's, um, you know, you see these goofy pictures from all around the world as school starts to open up with the square boxes around the little desks. Like what are the kids gonna sit in a, a little desk in the sensory deprivation box Sanity. doing clerical work by themselves or or they're playing in these like square chalk boxes with X's on them and don't get out of the box and t- how dare you touch your friend. Like when you see those images, you're like, wow, that is child abuse, isn't it? That, that's how are we allowing that? And then the next moment, the thought came in and I started giggling with joy and that's when I know truth when my heart opens and the ecstatic blissful, joyful laughter overtakes me, that's when I know truth. And so the truth I was shown was that these children, they knowingly also incarnated into families that are gonna put them in school to radically reinvent school from the inside out too. And they're not victims. And we are, maybe being a little bit disrespectful to bring on this attitude of whoa is these children these poor children they're getting abused no they are so much more powerful than we give them credit for they're gonna go to these schools and uh, i just like totally make up fun ruckus out of it. They're going to do like, like peekaboo, hee hee hee, and like spitballs. They're going to do all kinds of things to harmonize with this rigid militant energy. And they're going to soften the hearts of their teachers and the administrator. And they're going to radically reinvent and break down all of these rigidities from inside out because children do that. It's their nature. As much as the system's try to squash their spirit, they can't help it. And so these children are going to go back to school and just reflect back to the teachers and administrators how silly and ridiculous the whole thing is. And they're going to say, you know how sometimes children just say a few words that are so powerful and so wise, and they're going to do that and cause the whole thing to break down and dissolve. So I
2: like that much better. Good, I am so
1: blown away by the courage of these souls that chose to incarnate into those situations because they're gonna change the paradigm from the inside out. And there's, there's no accident, you know, we all need to do the piece that we feel called to. Our family feels called to do unschooling and, and to um, explore children opening their third eye and, and reading books with blindfolds on, like that's what calls to our hearts, but everybody has a different piece of the puzzle to, to take part in right now.
0: That's beautiful. I love that perspective um yeah like for we live in a small town and our kids were going to a stem school here we literally share the fence with our school there's uh 60 students uh k through eighth um my kids um like were, are in it's three or four grades in one room but to bear's point this is a public school and we will be on schooling moving forward because of everything going on that was our plan moving here but we happen to be next to this school we know the teachers we know everyone so we've been working with from the inside out with this my wife's the president of mm. the uh parents you know um association stuff and so it's really fascinating to see but we see the other darker sides with the on on the on the ipads all day long and they're not teaching writing it's all you know it's all technology focused even though it's also supposed to be a nature focused school where they're supposed to be doing nature walks and they like they've done stuff on the river here and they do but the problem is they can't do a lot of that because of all the liability issues. So these poor kids are surrounded. We live in the middle of the six rivers national forest and they only get to do like a run once a week up the street and stuff. We have all these trails they can't go on because of liability issues. It's, it's kind of crazy, but we've been working from the inside out. Exactly. But uh, due to the, the, the nonsense, we're, we're kind of over it. We're going to, we're going to focus on unschooling starting uh, after this year. Um, but that, I love your perspective there, and I see it. I see the spark in these kids' eyes. Um, however, there is one thing that we do need to bring up here that's realistic, that's important, is that the vaccine issue and that stuff, that is made to, init- to, to, to. in my eyes, I feel like that a, has a distinct effect of separating the spirit from the body. And that's something we have to be very open and awake to as parents and, and educate ourselves about that and having at least the ability to have the choice. And everybody's on their, own, on their own journey, and I don't judge anybody for the medical decisions they make. We chose not to vaccinate our kids <clears throat> because of the research I'd done. And they are very alive with the spark of, you know, my oldest son, we've called him an indigo child since the day he was conceived. And he's, he's got this spark of awareness since the day he was born. That's just dumbfounding and it's amazing. And he's the same way. And my, my youngest is just in a constant land of fantasy in this theta mode still, where he's just in a story of, unto himself. It doesn't matter where he is. He's in another world at all times. Um, but you know, that's something we need to be aware of is, is these, these beautiful souls coming in and maybe they have the ability to transmute the effects of the harshness of these chemical constituents being directly put in their bloodstream and stuff. But, you know, we have to be protectors of them too, so that they have the ability to, to affect the change that they've been brought on here to do. So I just wanted to throw that out there from my own perspective. um, And that's something that as conscious enlightened souls, um, we need to be aware of and fight for their rights to be able to to do what they've been they've they've incarnated on this planet to do, you know?
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um,
0: it's well, tough
1: so Today is story time. Um, I have a little bit of a story from Pachamama to share. Okay. People are up for that. How are yeah, we maybe we can,
0: we're coming up on two hours here, Dr. East. Maybe this would be a good way to kind of summarize and wrap up for the discussion
1: okay um i'll try not to cry because sometimes i the the moment i think about it, it 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 just is so moving that i can't help it um as you know we weren't planning to have children so i didn't hadn't really thought much about motherhood and then boom i was pregnant and um and so i just felt so drawn to go to peru all throughout my pregnancy and finally, just worked out the logistics that there was a 10-day guided tour with a three-day yoga meditation silent retreat right in the middle, going to, uh, traveling to uh, Machu Picchu, Sacred Valley, and to this island called uh, Amantani on Lake Titicaca. And I was seven and a half months pregnant, huge belly, and went to Peru with my husband and took this 10-day tour. So in the middle we spent 3 days on Lake Titicaca with this uh at this island called Amantani which is a very small island you could circumnavigate the whole thing in one day. I think it has like 3000 inhabitants that are all within 800 families. It's a small place. And it's got it's got a few sacred sites on it and um and we were supposed to be meditating with the meditation teacher. Beautiful people, great group, but the meditation sucked. <laughs> so <laughs> my husband and I are like, we're on this gorgeous island with friendly people. We might never be able to come here again. Let's go explore. So us and a few other participants on the tour and on the retreat just kind of played hooky and, and went out and explored. And so we're exploring all day and it's very high altitude and I have a huge belly. And so I'm just like lugging around my big belly and just having a good time, but moving pretty slowly. And then at the end of the day, a couple hours before sunset, they always take the group to a very specific site to show you the history, to bring you to this, this different sacred locations and tell you a little bit about the local customs and the lore of that sacred site. So we're like, oh, we gotta go back, get back to the hostel so we don't miss the tour. And I'm exhausted and cranky and hungry and thirsty and tired and um, I didn't want to miss the tour. So we hiked to the site called the Sion de Inca, the Inca Sea. And it's this mystery how they took this big old rock and carved it into the shape of a chair, like a seat or a throne and around it is those Inca stone walls surrounding this in a circular pattern. it looked pretty magical. And the tour guide and the meditation teacher said, well, um, people say this is one of the sacred sites on on this island. Um, We don't really know what it's for. Maybe some people come here to meditate because it gazes at the sunset right in front of the beach. It's just a beautiful view. But I wasn't half paying attention because I was so cranky and tired, you know. And so the tour guide guy, Stefan, was holding my hand to help me climb the last couple of boulders in this rugged path to get to the site. And I'm like, oh, oh, my God, I finally made it. And so he grabs my hand and puts it on the rock that is the, the seat. The moment my hand touches this rock my body dissolves. And I guess I found myself seated on the chair. I didn't know how that happened, but I was on the chair. And I just saw faces and faces and faces and faces and faces and thousands of faces of beings that I knew had sat on that chair and received something there. That this isn't a meditation place. This is, um, maybe like the sarcophagus or something that has a special energetic to it that transmits information so i saw the faces 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 and then it became mandalas 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 geometries mandalas 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 so fast and then this column that overtook me this column of light energy geometries overtook my entire being it was encoding my being with information that there's just absolutely no chance I could even process what's going on and right after that Pachamama came in Wow, and it was an indescribable kind of love she loves us so much we have no idea And it was like, oh, my goodness, honey, welcome home. Welcome home. And the tears just started gushing and gushing and gushing. And I said, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. I just felt so sorry for all our shitty and stupid and unconscious polluting ways. How disrespectfully we've been living on this planet. And I just, I just kept saying, sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, because in the presence of that intensely loving, sweet, awe-inspiring motherly love, I just didn't know what to say except I'm so sorry. And she said, no, honey. Don't be sorry. And the energy she gave me was exactly like now I have a five and a half month old just starting her first taste of food. Okay. And it just it goes everywhere. It spills. it's so messy. And it's so cute. And you still love you love them even more because it's so cute and messy, you know? Yeah. So she said, she said, Oh honey, it's just you're perfect. Don't don't feel bad about the messiness when you grow up you will stop making the mess i know it i love you so (laughs) much and it was like that there was absolutely no space for guilt or feeling bad in any way because she's so vast she's not perturbed by our silly polluting ways she could clear that in a second you know it's just um it it just seemed, I realized that it seemed like it's almost egotistical for us to be like, oh, we need to, you know, like, like, um, take care of the planet. like the planet can take care of herself. And she's taking care of us. And she's patiently and lovingly waiting for us to grow up at our own perfect timing. And then she started showing me every single time that we walk down a street and pick up a piece of trash. That she loves us so much for that. And every time that we run our hands on a rock or walk barefoot on the sand or hug a tree, she says, I live for that. This is my nourishment. You're my children. I love so much that you take time to hug the tree because you're hugging me. And then she showed me every single time that I either myself doing a guided meditation or leading groups in my classes doing a guided meditation where we visualize with finger quotes ourselves in nature and and feel that sense of awe and love and appreciation. And then we send that love into the earth and root down into the earth and reconnect with the earth in our visualizations. She says, you think that's a visualization? You think that's some guided imagery that you're doing? I live for those moments where I get to hug you and nurture you and kiss you and hold you. Those aren't imaginary moments. That's not just in your head. So she just said, thank you, thank you, thank you for every time that you choose that. For every time that you choose to do these meditations where you merge back with me, and every time that you touch a rock or hug a tree or any seemingly minuscule thing you do that is out of kindness and love for the planet, I live for those moments. And so, there was a lot of this kind of crying and healing and exchange and um the bible has this prodigal son story it was a prodigal daughter story and i realized that she is role modeling for me what motherhood is supposed to be about that that was the best parenting lesson i could have ever dreamed of getting And it was not an accident that it happened. And that encoding of energy happened with my boy in my belly, seven and a half months pregnant, that that happened like that. And I thought, whoa, that was the trippiest five minutes of my life. And when I opened my eyes, an hour or two had elapsed. The sun had completely set. And my husband was standing there with a towel so sweetly and respectfully waiting for me to come back out of that state so he could wipe down the the faucets of like, avalanches of tears that was running down my face. And, um, and ever since then, whenever I'm in nature, that opens some kind of a portal that if I have a question, I can um, tap back into that state of being. And... Um, Either I get a transmission of of loving sweet loving energy that reminds me what it is to be a mother whenever I get impatient with the kids i that is like a medicine that I need sometimes and um and um sometimes I get kind of a drawn to i don't actually really meditate meditate i I like to do breath work and um go to nature, just get still, get peaceful with a nature walk, you know, not like a formal meditation practice, but after everything happened with George Floyd, um, maybe there's a George Floyd, maybe not. I don't know. Um, after everything that happened, I, I heard her call to sit your butt down. (laughs) Mm -hmm. There's like, not in that harsh way, but I just like, I sat my butt down and I got a transmission and, um, And it was the same loving energy. And she said, hey, I'm just doing some cleaning up here. And um, it seems like you guys are growing up and you're doing some cleaning up, so good job. And the most important message she gave that I, I, I hope your listeners will also appreciate as I did, that when you clean up, it has to look messier before it looks better and so she wanted us to remember that sometimes when you clean up just like a mom said hey honey it's time to do some spring cleaning do you still want this toy or is it time to donate to salvation army or goodwill right now that was the kind of vibe she was giving me she's like honey we're doing some cleaning up thank you for helping good job good job you know and uh, which toys you want to keep and which toys is the time to purge? And so she's like, she's like, don't get stressed that it looks a little bit more messy before it gets clean. Don't judge the story based on this one small snapshot in time. Right now is just that moment where it looks a little bit messier before it gets clean. And she says, I'm always here for you and with you. And I wish you guys didn't forget that so often. And for as long as we keep this intimate connection alive, you will always be all right. You're my children. I love you. I'm here to take care of you and love you always. So please don't, no need to bring the anxieties, the fears, the worries. We're just doing a little, little spring cleaning here. And it's going to be a glorious future. If we're willing to work with it instead of, um, drop into fear and fight against it. And, and, um, judge judge it too harshly based on one little snapshot in time because there's a lot of beautiful unfoldment that is about to occur so that was mother earth pachamama's message to us from
0: this week and i
2: think it's a perfect message that we all need to hear right now so thank you so much for that
0: yeah, your your parents looking at this. Uh, I assume I don't know if they're still around, but should be very very proud of where where you've ended. And um, that was very touching. Thank you. And something that we should all remember is just uh, it's so simple. Go uh, ground your feet in the grass anywhere you are, and and, t- and get in line with um, with Mother Nature and with this planet because this is um, who we are. So. Um, we'll we'll leave it there. Thanks so much. What an amazing talk today, um, Dr. E. This has been uh, been really quite profound, and it's affected me more than a lot of um, than a lot that you would even can even imagine. So, um, hey guys, everybody, thanks for uh, listening today. If you're watching this on YouTube, please give us a thumbs up. Subscribe to the channel if you're not subscribed yet. And share this. This really helps us get this message out. Um, we need to get this out to as many people as possible right now, as we look towards this great transformation. Uh, and um, if you're listening on iTunes, please, uh, if you wouldn't mind giving us a, a comment and a review, that would really help us out. Or whatever podcast format you're on, uh, you can uh, follow us on um, all of our different platforms. Just go to alphavedic.com. We've launched our new site. Uh, we're really proud of. So please, if you haven't checked it out, go check out alphavedic.com. And there you can join our mailing list. You can get onto our Telegram group, which is an amazing uh, community that we've developed uh, that Dr. E was talking about at the beginning that has uh, just all these amazing souls in there talking every day. That's t.me forward slash alphavedic. And I'm just really proud of that community and everything that they're all about. So please, if you're, if this resonates with you, that is the community for you to go, uh, join. We're also on discord, Instagram, all those platforms you can find on our, on our website. So thanks again, uh, Dr. E for joining us today. Thanks bear, uh, as always, and everybody please go out there and take a nature walk, plant some food, get, you know, it's just so easy to do and just, um, just an amazing thing you can do for yourself. So, Thanks again, and thank you, Dr. E, once again. Thank you, Edith, for joining us today. It was really my pleasure.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I love and respect you guys so much, and um, I I feel so honored to have um, finally found this time where we can reconnect because doesn't it feel like we already knew each other for lifetimes, and um, it's just a beginning. We've just found each other again, and I'm so excited and feel so blessed to have you guys in my life.
0: Same here. Same here. We're just scratching the surface.
2: <laughs> and we're just up the road from you. So uh, just hop on 101 and come see us someday.
0: Yeah. And, uh, I like to go to the city to go to shows and I occasionally DJ nightclubs still and and more, more in, so the festivals, the consciousness festivals is kind of where my realm is for playing music. Now I feel that resonates. So I don't really like the nightclub scene anymore. Um, so if, you know, if you're open to that, um, I'll make sure to share with you. We do some cool festivals down in the Bay area. So, um, anyways, uh, Great. uh, Once again, and everybody, thanks so much for joining us today. Have a beautiful, wonderful day. Thank you.